As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? The point is, is that if we get ourselves in a hole we can't get out of, it's going to be our mm. own fault. There's nothing about the economics right now that means that we can't you know, work our way out of where we are. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Danny Forts, and the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And we're going to do something a little different this week. Um, so you may recall, right when the pandemic broke out, we mixed it up a bit and brought on a bunch of different guests who could provide kind of different perspectives on just what the hell was happening in the world. To the economy, and the tech industry, etc. It's kind of everything. And one of the folks I had on at the time was uh, Paul Romer, who was a... Nobel Prize winning economist. He was also the formerly the World Bank's chief economist. So I figured he was a good person to ask because at the time, much of the West, of course, was going into shutdown, into lockdown, as well as pushing through these massive stimulus packages. Just we were swimming in debt and everybody was trying to kind of freaking out, trying to figure out what, what was going on. And I wanted to ask him kind of what's the path forward here, how he saw this playing out, how he thought it should play out economically speaking. So six months on, it is safe to say that things have not gone according to, uh, well, anyone's plan. Um, the UK is going back into soft lockdown. The US, we just passed 200,000 people who have died from COVID. We're still, of course, some way away from a vaccine. And in terms of policy, no one seems to have really got a good handle, at least in the West, on how to get back to life and to work in a kind of a sensible, workable way. So I wanted to bring Paul back to just to get his thoughts uh, on the past six months, the kind of the state of the economy now, trying to separate what is, you know, st government stimulus from actually real sustainable growth and what things look like going forward. And uh, for those in the tech world, this is all, of course, very pertinent because, you know, we've all heard how, you know, so many great companies are founded during a recession, that it's a great time for a startup, etc. Um, well, like everything else, it seems these days, uh, he says this time is different on that front as well. Mm, maybe not so good. And it's worth listening to him because on that front in particular, he spent much of his career looking at the intersection of technology and the wider economy. So without further ado, here is Paul Romer, Nobel Prize winner, and just as importantly, repeat guest of Danny in the Valley. Enjoy. So we spoke in March and you were on the podcast March 27th. And then obviously the world was very, very different. Well, very different and very similar, which we'll get to. 
so I'd already I'd already published my first op-ed at that point, but uh, but we didn't know where this crazy ride was going to take us. Exactly. So the thrust of that conversation then was like, okay, we have a two trillion dollar bailout package. Why don't we use a whole you know a sliver of that money, a relative sliver, on ramping up testing and PPE and kind of put in mitigating some some mitigations here so that we can. Uh, I think the phrase used at the time was so we don't have to keep making this choice between killing the economy and killing people. And that's where we were March 27th. It is now September 22nd, so six months on. And the day we are speaking, actually, in the UK, they announced that they're basically rolling back a lot of the opening that they had previously started. And for the next six months... It's kind of like a a soft lockdown. Like some parts of the economy are open, but a lot of them are basically being rolled back or with restrictions as cases spike back up. And so six months on from when we last spoke, how are you feeling about the economy and kind of, you know, some of the things that you were talking about, these investments that we needed to make in testing, in PPE to get us out of this, you know, or at least in a better position for this predicament how are you feeling about life now that we are, you know, getting toward the end of September? Well, you know, back in, in March, the moment we spoke, we were facing this tough trade-off between really just killing the economy or killing more people. The point I was making back then is, is that with some simple investments, we could have much better choices. We could have a way to keep the economy functioning and to keep the, the virus in check. The, the tragedy is that we have not made those simple investments to have better choices. So we're still kind of flopping around between locking people down versus letting the virus uh, spread and kill people. And it's an amazing uh, and tragic failure of public policy. I have a much clearer read on what's caused this failure in the United States. I am a little puzzled, but watched from a greater distance about the the failure in in the UK. What is that clearer read? Um, This president decided very early on that his path through the pandemic would be to try and suppress information about how bad the problem was. And he's been very consistent and even very public about doing this. The recent quotes that have come out from Woodward undercut this theory that he's he's incompetent, doesn't know what he's doing, he's a clown. He knows exactly yeah. what he's doing. And he's doing what he's done all throughout his career, which is banking on his ability to uh, distort people's perceptions of what's true. So rather than dealing with the problem, he wants to create this reality distortion field which uh, suggests that the problem has has gone away when it when it clearly hasn't. This is this is really an astonishing decision. You know, if the word evil means anything, this is an evil decision. This was a decision that involved letting tens of thousands, maybe even the hundreds of thousands of people die because mm. it looked like, from his perspective, the natural or best way to enhance his chance at getting uh, reelected. So, you know, I think the, the people who 
are trying to do the right thing here have been hesitant about using language like for a long time, even just to say he was lying. I think uh, they're yeah. still hesitant to say that this was an evil decision. But if killing tens of thousands of people to enhance your electoral prospects, if that isn't evil, what does that word mean? Right. So on that point, how would in an ideal world, I mean, beyond just the messaging, which I think we can all agree is, you know, it, you know, you, you're you talking about the Woodward quotes where he just tells them flat out like, yeah, I'm underplaying this. And I know it spreads through the air and I know it's a big deal and I know this is very deadly, etc. But I'm playing it down very deliberately. But the actual response, and especially when we're looking at this through the economic yeah. lens, how could this have been done differently? Because, for example, and I live in California and it's mm -hmm. different. I live on the, sorry, I live in the Bay Area, which is different from the rest of California in many ways. But, you know, you walk out of the street, everybody's got a mask. And testing, it's obviously far higher than where it was when we first spoke, but it's still probably not where it needs to be, et cetera. So things are progressing, but I'm just trying to understand, like, how could we be in a different place or what were you hoping would have happened that hasn't? So what could have happened was first, much earlier on, we could have uh, been encouraging people to use masks. We could have ramped up the supply of the standard surgical type masks and then also uh, substantially ramped up the supply of these N95 masks. We completely failed to make those investments in the surge capacity we needed in, in PPE. And then we had a president who, for political purposes, tried to persuade many people not to wear masks. Okay, so that's failure one. But the second one is the failure to adopt this simple strategy of test and isolate. And the only way to stop the spread of this virus without restricting the activities of people who are not infected is to figure out who's infected and infectious and yeah. then isolate them briefly, like two weeks at, at, at most. That way, you wouldn't even have to require that, that people wear masks. You wouldn't have to worry about compliance with masks. If we were effective enough at test and isolate, then everybody else can go back uh, about their, their normal activities. So you could have had an initial investment in reliance on masks, and then that could have tapered out as we ramped up test and isolate. I thought that the problem with persuading people to use test and isolate uh, was mainly one of getting some kind of reactionaries from public health to recognize that this virus was different and they couldn't just use the methods that they'd used in the past. But, yeah. but over time, this point caught on in the, you know, the kind of the intellectual academic community. Even members of the Republican Party in the Congress were uh, pushing on this point. And at every turn, what happened was when this reached the level of a, a decision, Trump vetoed it and stopped it. I mean, there was a very clear moment where people were recognizing that pooled testing could substantially increase the capacity of our central testing labs. It's where you take a bunch of samples yeah. and pool them together. So Giroir, you know, our testing czar was talking about pooled testing. Mm -hmm. Fauci was talking about it. Some of the Republican senators were talking about it. But then that thing just completely died. The momentum there. And every time where there's been some kind of 
consensus or some group that was making progress towards more uh, effective use of testing, it just hit the wall. And we now know what that wall was. The wall was a president who does not want more testing because more testing will lead to more cases. He was focused like, you know, like a laser on um, manipulating perceptions and, you know, and knew that this was going to kill people. And so, and I want to get to the state of the economy, but just to play devil's advocate before we move on to that, I mentioned the UK, similar th things are happening in France, in Spain, where they really locked down hard, they got things under control, they started to open up. And now it's like, oh, my goodness, it's it's getting to a Boris Johnson, the prime minister called it a perilous turning point where all of a sudden, you're getting back to this phase where it could start spreading exponentially again. Point being, this is just very difficult. Every time you open up, you're going to go back to exponential growth. That's the thing, is that opening up is going to speed up the, the spread of the virus. You're going to go from a positive, yeah. from a negative growth rate to a positive growth rate. The obvious thing to do is do something that depresses the growth rate or this R parameter, which however you mm. want to refer to it. Do something that depresses the growth rate or the reproduction number. At the same time, you're opening up and increasing it. You do those two things together, you can get a return to normal and you can keep uh, our, our below one. But people keep thinking, if we wait long enough or we you know, wait till it's Wednesday and then we open up and increase our, you know, they're like shocked. Oh my God, uh, it, it's, it's growing exponentially again. But this was entirely predictable. It's kind of this magical thinking that let people think that it was okay to open up, to go back to normal without doing something else that suppresses the spread of the virus that's consistent with, with opening up. But before we kind of divert on this, I want to I want to just make sure that we're clear here. One of the very effective successes of the president's part has been to suggest that the U.S. is in the same position as the U.K. or Western Europe. And this is just absolutely mm. false. The numbers this week are that the United States is still about, you know, about five times the current death rate of uh, the U.K., and the only European country that is close in terms of the current death rate to the United States. You mean per, per yeah, capita? Per, per million people, exactly. Right. Um, the only country that's even close in that per capita sense is is Spain right now. So Spain has an outbreak which right. really has gotten up to the the kind of the, the U.S. levels. But France, mm -hmm. uh, the U.K., you know, they're all dramatically lower in terms of the current death rate than yeah. the United States. And and it's really revealing to see how people have gotten, you know, this distorted picture in, in mind. Trump goes out and says something like, the U.S. has the lowest death rate in the world. Okay, now this is like obviously false. Everybody knows it's false. Yeah. And it's like journalists are wasting their time showing that it's false. Everybody knows it's a lie. But then the apologists and the collaborators with Trump come along and say, well, you know, you know, it's not true that we have the best uh, death rate in the world, but we're in the middle of the pack. And that more mm. moderate position takes root. So Trump's, you know, absurd claims are the cover for the effective lies of his, you know, his enablers and, uh, you know, so supporters. It's like when you go to the, the theater in the United States, you get a choice between a big size of popcorn 
a huge size and this like obscenely huge size of popcorn. And then people yeah. pick the middle one. Okay, I'll just I'll go with the middle and I, I buy I buy huge. And it's still yeah, ridiculously yeah. But huge. so in the same way, Trump makes these just outrageous uh, lies. People who then lie under the shadow of those outrageous statements seem like they're saying things that are kind of moderate. And so people who are listening can say, well, I kind of I'm going to go with the moderate guy. He's in the middle. There's some other people who are saying, you know, the U.S. is is really worse. But, you know, we must be kind of in the middle of the pack. And uh, there's a technical distortion here that these kind of effective liars are using, which is the distinction between total deaths and the current death rate. The thing that tells you about the effectiveness of policy is how many people per million are dying right now. The total yeah. death rate is pretty much uncorrelated with the current death rate. And so that leads to this interesting question. Why are there some places that have a very low death rate now that had this extremely high death rate in the in the beginning? Yeah. But, but if you want to get into the, the weeds, I'm happy to explain that. So before we do that, I want to talk about the economy because I'm confused about both the state of the economy and, you know, where you were kind of in this period of suspended animation where you've had $2 trillion pumped into the economy. In the UK, there's been a big furlough scheme funded by the government. And you're kind of wondering, okay, well, you know, what's the end game here? And how, when is the air let out of the bloom? Or when, do, when does the balloon pop? Because obviously we have tens of millions of people out of work. It's terrible. I'm just trying to understand like the actual health of the economy and what awaits us because it feels like, you know, the music's going to have to stop at some point. Well, well, first, let me, you know, part of the, the, the challenge of being somebody trying to convey the truth on these issues is you got to live by your, you know, your principles. You got to admit when you've made mistakes. Yeah. So I was initially concerned that this could end up being a depression worse than the, the Great Depression. Now, that turned out to be not be the case. Based on the change in GDP, the levels of unemployment, we did not exceed the severity of the Great Depression. So I was kind of planning for the worst, but it was not that bad. It is still the right. most serious depression recession since the Great Depression. And uh, what we've had was a very sharp fall. And then, you know, roughly in terms of job losses, hmm. we've moved in some sense, halfway back. But halfway back from this very sharp fall still leaves us with an extremely high unemployment rate by you know recent standards. And it also leaves us with a very high rate of job loss. It isn't just that you know 10%, and this is an underestimate, the, the true unemployment rate is probably closer to 12%. But um, it isn't just that there's a constant fraction of 12% who are unemployed. They're just kind of waiting to get called back. The number of people who get laid off every week that we see from filings for unemployment insurance is higher than every single week. It's still higher than every single week during wow. the financial crisis, except for one. There was a single week in the financial crisis where the new claims for unemployment exceeded the number of new claims that we're seeing every week right wow. now in the United States. So lots of people are losing their jobs still. Some are getting new, their, their jobs and going back, but there's an amazing amount of churn. And this is not a sign of a, a remotely, it's not even remotely a sign of a healthy, uh, a healthy economy. So 
is not as bad as the Great Depression. A lot of people are unemployed. A lot of people are losing their jobs every week. And there's a lot of suffering out there. But, you know, here, this language about like the K-shaped recovery, it's it's very unequal in terms of its effect. Mm. If you're a professor like me, you do remote work, you're in the upper tail of the income distribution, it seems like everything's just a-okay. But, you know, you walk around New York and you see, you know, like families sitting on the door stoop because they've just been evicted from their apartment with their, you know, their belongings in in paper bags and have no idea what they're going to go do. Mm. You know, one of the nice things about New York is it's an integrated enough kind of world. You can actually see the suffering. And it isn't just uh, something you have to read about in the, in the paper. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So how does this play out, though? Because what I'm trying to... I'm trying to understand is you had this huge influx of government cash. There's debate about how to extend that and, you know, under what conditions, et cetera. And it's the same, you know, around the world, including in the UK. But if you have more, all these people out of work, you have less people paying taxes, you're put, taking on more debt to kind of keep society from falling apart. I'm just trying to understand how, is there a clear path back to, financial health or what you know at a certain point yeah. you feel like the state you know you're kind of out of ammunition my take on this is that from an economic perspective the united states the uk uh, the countries of western europe none of these countries are in profound permanent state of crisis because of this shock we can all manage the economics of this shock what is worrisome is the state of our political systems. We have to make decisions about what the nation will do, about what our governments will do for us. And it is quite possible that some nations, including the United States, will be so paralyzed that even though there's a simple way to manage the economic shock, we will fail to make any decisions about how we're managing this. We'll just continue this procrastination and these attempts to just like distort and lie about what's going on. And that, if it continues uh, long enough, that could lead to a point where they're really, it's, it's much more difficult to dig your way out of the, the economic hole. So the point is, is that if we get ourselves in a hole we can't get out of, 
it's going to be our yeah. own fault. There's nothing about the economics right now that means that we can't, you know, work our way out of where we are. Is there a precedent? I mean, I know this is unprecedented in many ways, but is there a precedent that we can look to and be like, oh, okay, well, something similar happened before and, you know, whatever, the tax take went from 100 to 20 or, you know, making up numbers. But here is the path back and this is what yeah. it looks like. Well, first, <laughs> kind of like beat my drum, any pass where we get everybody back to work quickly mm. is going to fail right now because that's going to push the, re yeah. the reproduction number above one. We're going to see this rapid exponential growth of this, this virus. And then the governments are going to lock people down and people are going to withdraw because they don't want to get this, this virus. So any attempt at getting back to normal is doomed to fail until we pair it with a strategy that keeps suppressing the virus as we right. as we recover. Okay, that's the first thing. You know, for better or for worse, we're in a time when interest rates are extremely low. So that the cost of borrowing to manage a short-run period of distress is remarkably low. And so that's our shock absorber. You use borrowing against a better future to help fix the problems you face now and to get to that that better future. So, and this this kind of the, the precedent here is the Great Depression, where you know Keynes was trying to persuade people this kind of moralistic impulse that kicks in, which is like, mm. oh, debt is bad. We shouldn't take on debt, is it just profoundly short-sighted? And that in a time of a deep shock. The best way to get back to normal, the best way to keep debt under control is actually to take on more debt. But in the context where you've, you know, you've managed the virus problem, you use the debt to recover. Right. So what we did is we used some debt to try and recover, but we did it in a context where we knew the virus was going to start spreading again. So that was a, a, that was a real waste. And now the Republicans are starting to you know, wring their hands about, oh, God, we're nervous about debt when they used up a ton of debt for a, a, you know, a really pointless tax cut uh, under Trump, and then used a bunch of, issued a bunch of debt in a program that was doomed to, to fail because we weren't addressing uh, of the virus. And so, you know, they're going to pull back from using it now when it would still be the way to, to get out of this hole if we pair it with something that addresses the, you know, the, the virus. And is there any way that this turns out, you know, it's kind of like the Great Recession of 2008, where the kind of rich get richer, and the kind of the middle, the hollow, the middle is hollowed out, because if you think, I'm just talking personally, mm -hmm. we yeah. own a house, all of a sudden we can refinance, and actually, as long as we're employed, knock yeah. on wood, we're better off, actually, while as to your point, you have people, families on yeah. a stoop being like, oh yeah. my God, we don't have anywhere to live. Well, I, I think this is a little bit like battlefield medicine. There's some kind of mm. triage that, that you have to do. I think the United States and other countries in the world may conclude that they've gotten themselves into a position of inequality, which is just unsustainable politically, yeah. you know, morally. It's just not the kind of society people want to have. We can change that if we decide that we want to change that. But first things first, we've got to stop uh, this crisis of, you know, around like 800,000 people who are losing their jobs every week. And, you know, a huge number, 10, 12% of the labor force who are not employed. We've got to solve that problem first. Then I think we have to look at the underlying causes of the 
growing inequality right. and the ways we could try and push those trends in the other direction. Those 800,000 a week, how does that compare to like, I don't know where we were in January or, you know, last year? There's a certain amount of churn always yeah, in, the, yeah, in the job that's market, kind of but what I'm it, getting uh, at. it's on the order of you know two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand, maybe. So, right. so you know, five hundred thousand more people each week who are losing their jobs than you'd see in a normal normal economy. Right, but from where you said, there is a way to kind of, well, to your point, it's not about it's not about returning to normal, but it's about kind of getting the economy going in the right direction by opening smartly. As we did, we could use borrowing to then provide stimulus to mm -hmm. help the economy recover quickly. And, and as long as you're pairing that with something which is keeping the spread of the virus under control, that'll be a smart thing to do. And, and to go back to that point, it's not that expensive. It's not that hard to put in place a measure that will um, push down this this reproduction number pushed down the growth rate of the virus. The test um, and isolate using, using the test, test and isolate that we can do right now. If the vaccine comes in, if it's widely adopted, that'll help too. But we don't know how effective the vaccine is going to be. We don't know when it's going to be available. We don't know how many people are going to be willing to, to use a vaccine, given that we've got this virulent, you know, kind of anti-vax, anti-science yeah. movement in, um, in this country and other parts of the world. And You've got a president who's totally undermined the credibility of the scientific and, and health establishment in the government. You know, the CDC and the FDA, amongst the people I talk to, they have zero credibility at this point. We don't even know when there's a statement on the CDC website, whether it's coming from the CDC or from some, you know, some Looney Tunes that the yeah. White House has, has instructed to write some, some nonsense so this is going to hurt us, I think, hugely when you try and go out and tell people, no, this vaccine is actually safe to, to use. Well, I think that's also, to your point around magical thinking, it does feel like um, everybody's just waiting for that magical day when it arrives. And then it's kind of, again, getting back to this idea of, then we'll be able to get back to normal. But that just feels unrealistic. And again, I guess the point where you're making around messaging people are living in this fantasy world that Trump has built. It's just it's really amazing at how effective he's been at distorting people's perceptions about reality. Uh, it's interesting to look and see how he did this too. You know, if you look at like the, the new book that's out from the guy who was part of the, the Mueller team, mm. or if you look at like the reactions right now of the serious scientists at the CDC and the FDA to this just incredible destruction to their credibility, which is which is unfolding right now. But people on the other side feel constrained to play by the rules. Yeah. They believe in the rules. They believe in institutions. They believe in the law. And so they feel like they have to follow the, the, the rules. And they, they have trouble believing that they're dealing with a man who is evil and has no compunction whatsoever about destroying any rule that gets in his way. And so you get these moderate kind of responses thinking, well, I don't want to, you know, in, in pushing back against the bad things I see, I don't want to undermine our institutions. I don't want to further undermine the credibility of the CDC. I don't want to give some ammunition to people who will say that the, 
you know, the investigation into the the, the, the the participation of the Russians in our last election. We don't want to give some credibility to people who say that was just, you know, politically um, motivated. So what it's revealing is, I think, really very frightening about the future of um, our societies. If somebody who is that evil and that committed to breaking all the rules mm. uh, runs with that, you know, inclination and puts that into place, all of the potential opponents are going to be left behind because they're too slow to appreciate they could really be dealing with something that's so serious. And so they'll always take half measures where if they had realized, you know, if they'd realized from the beginning they were dealing with a threat that was so serious, they would have responded, you know, much more, uh, much more fully. Right. I'm out here in California, obviously. A lot of people I talk to, a lot of people I've had on this podcast, you know, some have had their businesses disappear overnight. Others are doing just, I mean, it's a revolution. And I, we had like, for example, the CEO of PayPal on, and he's seen like five time increase in number of businesses using PayPal, you know, digital commerce, et cetera, touchless um, payments, et cetera. And there's a, there's a strong narrative here that this is kind of a kind of once in a generation amidst the chaos and tragedy opportunity that this is going to create whole new industries, whole new ways of working, whole new opportunities jobs, etc. And I'm just wondering if, if there is any economic history there that would back up that idea, that event, I don't know if it's like a world war or something where it'd be like, everything's changed, everything's up in the air. And all of a sudden, you come out the other side, and you're like, wow, there's all this new stuff or new way of doing things. There's a theory that, um, that social systems are subject to sclerosis. Mm-hmm. It's a word you don't hear very often, but except yeah. in this context. But somehow there's this accretion of frictions that just slow everything down and a big shock to the system is the way to free things up and, and get yeah. things to happen. It's a little bit like this moralistic theory of, oh, like debt is bad. You know, this is the one, this is kind of like we, we need to pay our dues and get punished and have a big bad shock. And then somehow we'll, we'll do better afterwards. So I think it's got a certain emotional appeal that leads people to adopt it too quickly. And there are some indications, like if you look at the recovery in Germany or Japan after World War II, when big conglomerates that dominated the economy were restrained or broken up and there was room for new entrants to come in, you can actually see some value from having more room for the for the new entrants in the economy. But I think the people who are seeing that sort of opportunity for the United States are, are missing two fundamental points. The first is we're doing incredible permanent damage to levels of trust and trust mm-hmm. in institutions, respect for the rule of law. But this is also going to impinge on these tech firms because users are not are going to know they cannot trust any of these tech firms to tell them honestly what uh, the firm is doing and the ways in which it's manipulating a user. So the distrust is growing, and this mm-hmm. is going to limit the potential of, of all of these models. The other thing is, is that remember what was good about the post-World War II experience in Japan and Germany was entry. New firms could get in and get started. Yeah, we've built up entrenched positions now in our tech sector, 
and you know because tech touches everything those are extending yep. into other parts of the economy which mean it's going to be much tougher to actually have effective new entry into anything that could compete with those uh, those entrenched firms so the prospect that we're going to have this burst of entrepreneurship because all of these you know new young entrepreneurs yeah. are going to be able to start new companies that's just completely out of line with the, the economic reality that we're we're seeing and just play this one out. Think about, for example, the appearances look very strongly as if Trump is working a quid pro quo with Facebook, yeah. that Facebook has been helpful for his campaign. So Trump will impede TikTok at the request of Mark Zuckerberg. This is pretty well documented. Mm -hmm. the, the attorney general will go out and attack Google more aggressively with an antitrust suit. So the very notion of any kind of antitrust enforcement that could prevent, you know, sort of this this loss of the opportunity for entry, the very notion of antitrust enforcement is going to be delegitimized because people are going to say, this is just one side in these big fights between titans um, manipulating the government to help them in, in, in their fight. You're sounding very much like a conspiratorial journalist, Paul. <laughs> uh, well, but listen, this is just this is like yeah. this is just out there in in, yeah. in the open. But but I think what the people who are you know benefiting because their firm's getting some more sales, they're taking on more you know uh, activity. You know, it looks kind of rosy to them. They're not appreciating the the really serious damage that's being done to the foundation of the economy, which rests on this idea of free entry and on the mm -hmm. idea that a consumer knows what they're getting, pays to get it, and then if they don't like what they get for what they pay, they can go somewhere else. Hmm. That's just the foundation of economic activity. It's being just dramatically un undermined right now. People can't go somewhere else, and they don't know what they're getting. What do you mean? Can you like, give an example? What do you mean? Somebody uses YouTube. Yeah. You know, what are, what are you getting when you, uh, you use YouTube? Looks like you're getting something for free. But you're also getting manipulated because what you watch next, what you do next yeah. is being selectively presented to you based on very detailed information that, that Google has about you. And the same thing is true for, for you know, for Facebook and, and, and their ads. So what people are getting is manipulated in ways that they can't they can't assess and which are not leading them towards the outcomes that are going to be going to be best for them. But if you want to, you know, watch a video from like the Lincoln Project or something right now, yeah. you don't have a choice. You got to go on, on YouTube and, you know, literally, I mean, on YouTube, <laughs> if you got the wrong profile, they'll they'll send you down some path where you're watching, you know, like, you know, uh, pornography or, yeah, or you know, trails or, or, or yeah, QAnon yeah. or any number of so, things, right? And so you're not you're not hopeful about the the supposed crackdown coming on big tech. You know, there's been all this noise around it, and because no, they're obviously no. getting more powerful. I mean, Apple's worth two trillion, Facebook's sure, heading sure. toward a trillion, or whatever. Well, as you know, and we probably talked about six months ago, I have been pushing this idea of a tax on digital advertising because mm. I think this is a much this is a path which is much more likely to succeed than the traditional antitrust enforcement, and it gets to the heart of the you know the, the the corrosion that's eating away trust and yeah. uh the fundamentals of the of the market 
digital services would work just fine and do work just fine in a world where people pay subscriptions. They pay something and then they know what they get. Yeah. So I, I think because Washington's paralyzed, uh, this tax on digital advertising is something the states can do. I think this is the most likely uh, path forward. So lastly, just to go back to where we started, how are you feeling about the the outlook for the economy, given everything we know and everything that's happened over the past six months when we're looking forward? Should we be depressed or hopeful or both? <laughs> I, I think the economy is not where the action is. You know, the economy mm. is fine. We can restore the economy. We can even restore competition. I think the thing to watch is what's happening to our you know, our social fabric, to our political institutions, to our norms. If you think about the financial crisis, there were some profound, long-lasting and hard-to-understand changes about populism, about, Mm. you know, foreigners, about conspiracies that were the the longer-term consequence of, uh, of that crisis. This one is much worse. And you've now got actors who are even better prepared to try and take advantage of conspiracy thinking, magical thinking, you know, animosity. So I I think the damage to our political institutions could be, you know, much worse. Now, now let me give you one note of optimism. Because things are in flux, something like the brutality of police in their dealings Mm. with minorities has gotten traction in a way that, you know, it it didn't for, you know, this problem has been with us for decades. But it's finally getting some traction. So this period of flux could actually go in a positive direction. We could see something like the progressive movement revitalized, where we decide we don't want we want to live a place where the police keep us safe, but where they don't, you know, kill people and uh, yeah. they don't, you know, use brutality to in, in intimidate people. And we want to make sure that we actually have an economy where there's real choice and many firms. And there's a real chance on any given day that some existing leader will be displaced by some other new new firm. We could see a progressive movement come out of this that could actually um, take some you know profoundly important and positive steps. But it could equally well go go the other direction. The and other I think way, yeah. across the countries of the world, we're probably going to see some of both. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, perhaps we'll do another check in six months, and hopefully, it'll be um, things will be in a better place. But um, we shall see. I, I, you know, I, I was always the most optimistic economist I knew, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm really pretty, you know, sobered and worried about. But it sounds like what you're worried about is not so much the economy. It's no, it's no. everything else. It's the kind of society. It's the pillars of kind of. <laughs> it, it's it's people. Life as you know? we know I mean... it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, so, you know, but, but people, you know, they can be ugly and have a bad side, but they can have a really impressive and wonderful and, you know, an ennobling side and uh, things are in flux right now. I think it's just important for us all to try and steer for that better outcome because there's a bad one is one we don't want to explore again. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, look, thank you. I appreciate the time. Thanks. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Paul for taking the time to talk. Thank you guys, as ever, for listening, for your reviews. And I have seen recently a couple people have uh, chipped in a little cash in the old, um, from the little message at the beginning of the uh, podcast. So 
That's amazing. The bummer is it doesn't allow me to see who has actually contributed and kind of thrown a couple quid my way. So please do not interpret my lack of thanks, personal thanks, to anything other than the fact that I don't know who's doing it. But what I can say is thank you. It's actually really awesome. And programming note, I know we've had a lot of kind of repeat guests one form or another in recent weeks. I'm working on getting a whole new slate of newbies in here. That is coming soon, so don't even worry about that. And I think you'll agree the people we are bringing back are um, worth talking to. So that is it. I will be in the newspaper at thetimes.co.uk this weekend, of course. Um, you can find me on Twitter, at Danny Fortson. You can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. And that is it. hope you have a wonderful weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press-On Falsies.